Uh, Luke chapter 22. 22. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Our Father, we come before you this morning and would look to you to bless us as we look into your word, as we consider these things regarding your son as he approached the cross. We pray that you would uh, really help us to grasp and appreciate the magnitude of what he did as he went to the cross for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we were looking at how the Lord was making some big changes. He uh, got together with the disciples for the, the last Passover before he went to the cross. And I think it really was the last Passover as far as the Lord was concerned until the kingdom comes. And he told them, I look forward to eating this with you, but I'm not going to eat of it again until the coming of the kingdom. And the Passover was one of those feasts of Jehovah. And he said, no more. It's no longer a feast of Jehovah. This is now, and then he set up the new feast, which is really, you know, understanding who the Lord was, we, we, uh, we just take it for granted that if he wanted to put down the Passover, stop doing the Passover, he can do that. If he wants to start a new feast, he can. But if you look at it from the disciples' perspective, where they, there was no special halo over his head or anything that indicated that he was anything special. For a man to say, the Passover is done, I'm not going to eat of the Passover anymore until it's fulfilled in the kingdom and to establish a new feast to set aside a Passover was a, was a big thing. You just, you just don't do that. Uh, unless, but, but he had the authority to do that. And then he began to uh, show them that things were going to uh, going to be different he was going to go to the cross as it was prophesied of him, and there would be hatred of him, and uh, that's the way it would be. Although he was the Messiah, though he came from heaven, the, the world was going to reject him, and the world was going to reject his followers. And <clears throat> so I think we left off at verse 38, so we'll pick up at 39. And uh, it seems like as we get into these passages, uh, Luke continues to really develop the, I don't know, the paradox is the right word, knowing who the Lord is and all of his authority and all of his power, and yet you look at the position that he take, took of such humility and such lowliness, he really brings that out in this passage. And it kind of reflects back to the first section of Luke where the topic was the high and the low and how God raises up the, the lowly and brings down the proud in heart, the high, and you got that contrast of high and low, and then it brings us into the, uh, the uh, history of his birth and how he was welcomed by the angels but seen by nobody or by nobodies, the shepherds, you know, in his lowly birth. And there's, he, Luke brings out such a contrast between the high and the lowliness of the Lord 
when you looked at him, he was so lowly, and yet there is in that background that knowledge that he came from heaven, and there's none higher than he. Well, that concept that he developed and introduced us to in the first section, now he's going to bring and uh, really show the realities of this high and low combination paradox in the Lord. So verse 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw when he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. You see him saying twice here to pray that you would not enter temptation. And I was thinking about what temptation is. What is a temptation? A lot of times we think of temptation as being a, a, a pull, a sin. Somebody's trying to persuade you to do something that you know is wrong. But this is a different kind of a temptation. It's uh, kind of related, but it's it's the uh, the coming of Judas and the coming of the soldiers and so forth, where they're going to really uh, their, their faith is really going to be tested. They're really going to be. Uh, see just how strong their faith is. And so temptation seems to be the, just like what Satan did at the beginning when he came to Eve and he said, has God said that you can eat of every tree of the garden? Implying, or has he withheld the best from you? And really the question that Satan was asking is, is God really good? Or is there just a facade of goodness? Is he really good to the core? I mean, you've got this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he knows that if you eat of it, you're going to have this knowledge of good and evil, and you'll become wise like he is. And he's kept that back from you, is what Satan was saying. And so it seems to me that temptation is the question of, is God good? And they're really going to run into this when the soldiers come, and Judas, and they're going to see the Lord taken away. And where is God? in all of this. Is God, you know, that's the question that's going to be there, but the background question is, is God, if God is good, why has he abandoned us? I think that's where temptation is really at. The Lord says, pray so that you don't uh, succumb to this temptation. You don't fall under this, and, you, and the question, you don't adopt the attitude that, well, like Sarah, who said, God promised us a son, but he hasn't done it, so we better step in and kind of save the day for God. You know, we need to do something to produce the son that God has promised and brings in Hagar. That idea that I'm in a situation that seems like God's not going to do anything, so I need to do something. It's where you you look to uh, you look to something or someone else other than God to bring the goodness that you want or that you look for, because God's not supplying it. That's what I think that's what temptation is. And it plays into the concept of sin. You know, when you're doing something that you know is wrong, God has said not to do this, 
And is God, you know, you question the goodness of God and commanding me not to do this thing or, you know, whatever. You know, it's, I, think it, I think that's really the underlying uh, question, is God good in all the temptation? Now, you look at the Lord, the example that he sets before the disciples when he taught, he said, pray that you may not enter temptation. Well, let's see how the Lord prayed. Did he go, as he withdrew from the disciples and, and was off by himself, not very far away, they could still see him. And about as far as you could throw a stone. Uh, and as he began to pray, I mean, what, what form did his prayer take? Was he saying, oh God, when these soldiers come, help me to stand up, help me to be strong, help me to do uh, what is right, help me not to falter, help me... If I was going to pray so that I would not succumb to temptation, that's kind of probably the way I would go. Give me the strength or... Uh, But that's not how he prayed. He said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. And what he meant, of course, was what he would be going through, the whole cross, the the shame, the hatred, this this experience. He used the metaphor of a cup and to drink what was in that cup. Speaking of the experience that he would go through, take this away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And this is quite the... Of course, people are really puzzled over how how can he say that? Not my will, but yours be done. Because as the Son of God, we understand that his will wasn't different from the Father. He had the same... He was in tune with the Father. It wasn't like he went against the Father. So how can he say, not my will, but yours be done? And of course, none of us really understand this because he's the Son of God. We don't enter into that. But we do understand what it is to be in a human body. And we know that in our, in our flesh, we do not willingly go into suffering unless there's very good reason. To go, uh, I mean, even like yesterday before I went up to the farm, I thought I'd rinse off real quick. And I thought, you know, it'd be probably good if I took a cold shower. <laughs> That's hard to do, cold showers. I mean, there's some element of suffering there. And, the, and the, my body, the flat, you know, the, the body that I'm in, it resists the thought of stepping into a cold shower. And there is that element that we are created. We don't willingly destroy our flesh. There is something inside of us, unless we're really warped or twisted, but there's something inside of us that resists the thought and turns away from the thought of self-destruction or, or being hurt or suffering. And so there must have been something like that at that level, at the very... And that's the way God created us. Is he created us to preserve ourselves, to take care of ourselves. That's normal. That's just the way we're supposed to operate. And so you've got that natural self-preservation... And then the will of God saying, I want you to go into suffering. Those things, uh, the conflict there. The Lord, but what you see the Lord, the attitude that the Lord adopts, he says, not my will. My, when I look at the situation and go into that, Nails through my hand, that's not a good thing. Nails through my feet's not a good thing. Beating, crown of thorns, those are not good things. I, 
not something that I do for my hobby and drive nails through my hands or anything. I mean, it's not. Those are things I try to stay away from. But God says, well, what I want to accomplish, it would be good if you went into the if you went to the cross. And the Lord says, look, from a human perspective, those things I do not want to go into. But you are good. And if you say go into that, it is good to do it. So, really, if temptation is the question of is God good, the Lord takes the attitude of yes, God is good. Even though I... I want to speak as a human. <laughs> Even though I don't see the goodness of it, per se, God is good, and so to go that way is good. Now, of course, the Lord could see the goodness of it and so for the joy that went before him and so forth. But speaking as a human, he takes the attitude of one who says, regardless of what I feel about the situation, God is good, so your good will be done. And I think... Uh, I think that's how he wanted the disciples to pray. That regardless of what comes down the pike, to have the confidence to know that God is good and and to be to be willing to to uh, take His will and to do it His way. Now, an angel appeared from heaven and was strengthening him. This, so this is like we had an angel, you know, in the first section. Uh, that appeared to the shepherds, and it brought to us such an incredible contrast that angels appeared at his birth. This just doesn't happen. You don't have somebody give birth at the hospital, and all of a sudden the angel shows up and says, Hey, a baby's been born. I mean, it's never happened, I don't think, that we've had an angel show up at the birth of somebody. So it indicates that this one born is greater, I mean, it's that the angels take notice of it. I mean, there's been no one like this ever in the history of mankind. But at the same time, he's born in a manger, wrapped up in swaddling clothes. And there's no room for them in the end, and all of that. The lowest and the highest. And you see the same thing here. As he is down, not my will, but yours be done, as he's taking the absolute lowest place, and an angel appears to comfort him. We know that the struggle, or we can see, I guess, that the struggle that he went through was real. This isn't a, a show that he was putting on for disciples that, I'm going to the cross now, and it's going to be real tough here, and so I'm going to, please, God, you know, deliver me from temptation. No, he was in agony. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I don't fully understand what was behind that agony. But Luke doesn't bother to tell us. He just tells us, look, he was in agony. This was for him to go was very difficult. For him to say, Father, your will and not mine be done. That was a, um, what do you say? If we were talking about a person, we would say that's a big step of faith for them to go into a situation that they know is, is so agonizing and yet willing to go. I mean, that's, that's what he did. With that, he had, uh, I mean, it was not easy for him to go into this, but 
But he was willing to do it because it was the Father's will. So he comes to them the second time and asks and uh, tells them, you know, you need to you need to pray lest you enter into temptation. And it says in verse 47 that while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around saw what was going around, saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour, the power of darkness. So after the Lord prayed, Father, your will be done, uh, how did that, how was that prayer answered? What, what do we see take place? <clears throat> you know, and, he, and Luke brings, the next thing we see is that Judas comes with a crowd of people and they're going to come and arrest the Lord, basically, and he draws up and he's going to kiss the Lord. And as I was thinking about this, I thought about the Proverbs that say that a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So you've got, and it happens to us sometimes, that we got these plans on how we're going to do something. We've got to, we're going to do this, this, and this, and then that will bring us to this result. And all we got to do is just kind of work, and we get the plan. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we do everything just exactly so, and you end up way over in a different place than what you're expecting to be. Uh, I remember talking to a, a guy, and he was sharing with me his testimony. And he said, as a young as a young man, he did things right. He went to school, he did his homework, did whatever else. And but the situation turned so far south for him. Everything just went. He could not, and nothing turned out right. And as a teenager, older teenager, he found himself on the street and homeless. He was. And, and things just went phew, way downhill for him. And he said, well, the Lord did that because that's what it would take to bring me to him. But I was just thinking, you know, he did everything. It wasn't like he started out trying to get into trouble all the time, but he ended up, and there's details in a story, just like, boom, and it just crashed and fell. People plan their ways, and God directs their steps. I mean, that's, that's how God, and that's what, that's what God does. So Judas, coming to Jesus, had this plan in mind. He went to the priests and he talked to them. He said, "What do we?" And I, he says, "I can take you to them." And, and then they exchanged money. And Judas set his plans. And at some point earlier in the evening, he had left the upper room and he had gone to the chief priests and he said, "Hey, now's the night. Let's do it. I can do it." And they got together, a group of soldiers, and he comes down the road, and he comes out the garden, and sure enough, there's the Lord, right where he expected to find them and everything. And everything worked out just perfectly the way Judas had planned. He walked, even up to the point where he walks up to the Lord and kisses him, and they arrest him. And nothing went wrong. It all went exactly per plan. And they managed to get a hold. And even even the disciples, they, they had... It wasn't like they were totally chicken-livered. I mean, they were. there was some backbone there, and they grabbed their sword. It was, I mean, what are they going to do against this crowd? But it started, started to swing, and the Lord put a stop to it. 
I mean, it could have gone wrong there. Things could have really gone downhill fast. But nothing went wrong. It all went according to plan. The will of God was not to trip up Judas and to put a stop to this. He let it all go according to plan. And the Lord said, look, you guys are coming out. You think you've got success here. You finally arrested me. How come you didn't do it in the daytime? Well, obviously you're doing it in the nighttime now because you don't want people to see what you're doing. You know you don't have anything. You're not legit in the way you're going about this. You know you don't have a leg to stand on. So you come to me in darkness. But this is your hour, he said. This is the, pow- the power of darkness. This is the time when you are going to be able to do whatever you want. And the will of God is such that it's, you know, well, let's hold that thought for a second. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Is, uh, you just want to think a little bit about that power of darkness and what exactly that means or what that implies. In verse 54, it says, Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. So Luke is going to draw our attention to Peter. We're going to follow Peter for a bit here. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was also with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and went bitterly. Peter experienced the power of darkness. Peter was the one who said confidently, Lord, I will I will go anywhere. I will go I'm ready to go even to prison or even into death. I'm willing to do that for you. And we had talked about that last time and and as I thought about it, I thought, boy, for me to say I am willing to go to prison, yeah, maybe to go into extreme suffering or to go into death, yeah, I don't know if I could stand there with Peter and say that, even on a nice Sunday morning with a lot of friends around. That'd be, uh, I don't know, maybe Peter was just speaking bravado, but maybe he thought he really would be willing to go. You know, we see today that there's people who, uh, you know, like at the Mount Rushmore the other day, where there was a bunch of protesters actually had lined up they, they'd taken some vans and they put them crossways up the road that goes into Mount Rushmore and put them all crossways, took the wheels off, and they stood there and they're going to block people from getting up to Mount Rushmore and seeing the whole celebration shindig. They got arrested for that. Then people, they went to jail. They were willing to go to jail for this. And I'm like, wow. You know, would I be willing to go to jail for something like that? No, so I'm not so sure I would. Peter found somebody that he was willing to go to jail for, and he said even to death. But now observe the power of darkness. That as Peter comes into the courtyard and he sits down with them, and we see that three times he denies the Lord. He couldn't stand against this power. It was 
too much. He wasn't even under threat of going to jail. They weren't saying, are you with them? or will arrest you on the spot. It seems more like they were just saying, I think this guy was with Jesus, wasn't he? I don't know if they were threatening. It, didn't, it almost doesn't sound like it. But he could not stand against it. You know, you look at, when you think of the power of darkness, you think of uh, big guns and cannons and fire and brimstone and, and strength and might to push and shove. We don't see that kind of power here. We see something very small, a little comment here and a little comment there. And then an hour later, a third comment. And Peter can't... It's like This is like the, the weakest element of the power of darkness. It's not even great power. It's just a little snippet of the power of darkness. And it's too much for Peter to stand against. He crumbles under it and denies the Lord almost right to his face. This is the power of darkness. Now in verse 63 it says, The men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him, and having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and said, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. You look at what these guys are doing Luke draws us a bit of vivid imagery here. He's not getting too graphic in what they did, but this is very vivid. As he describes in detail, they are holding him. You've got a man who can't leave. He's he's, uh, being held in place. Maybe not physically, but he's there. They are mocking him, and they're going to beat him. And the way they did it was they took a blindfold and they put it across his eyes so that he couldn't see. And that, when you're in a a group of enemies, is probably the last thing you want is a blindfold so that you can't see what they're doing. It's just, that'd be very disorienting. And then especially when they wind up and they say, hey, tell us who's hit you. And then pow, and you can't see it coming. You're just standing all of a sudden, boom! And... And they did it again, and they mocked him and blasphemed him. The very vivid imagery that he draws here. Is this the will of God that they do this to him? Is this what God wanted? Was for them to beat his son? Remember the Lord prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Is this the will of God? And and the answer, of course, is no. He did not want them to be beating his son. That is, he wanted them to receive his son. The will of God, as far as what the Lord is praying, is, all right, son, I want you to go this way, and if they should beat you, do not resist. The will of God is not, oh, I want them to beat you, so go over there so they can do it. No, no, no. The will of God is, you go over this way, and they will, re- they will take you, and if they should beat you, do not resist. <clears throat> this is their hour. This is the hour where they will do, we are going to let them do whatever they want, and we are not going to try to stop them. Power 
is when you have the ability to make somebody do something that they wouldn't normally do. And real power is when you can make somebody do something that they don't want to do. <clears throat> Peter was in a situation where he did not, he ended up doing what he absolutely did not want to do. He denied the Lord. He did not, that was the last thing that he ever wanted to do. And it wasn't like somebody tied his arms down and forced him to say, I deny Jesus. No, he, he did it. The pressure was too great. Such is the power of darkness. This was... Uh, God could have interfered and caused Judas to trip, even on the way to when he was going to kiss Jesus, fall flat on his face, or something could have made things gone wrong. But he didn't. It was the will of God to allow darkness to exert their power and to do whatever they wanted to do and God would not prevent them. And he told his son, I don't want you to prevent them. I don't want you to resist. This was the will of God. Allow them do, allow them to do whatever they want to do. And later on, this will be underlined when Pilate is unable to get the people to let Jesus go and it says he delivered Jesus to their will. Let them do whatever, and they took him and, and to the cross. They struck him on the face. I said, prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things, they blasphemously spoke against him. Is it that we could reach that kind of level where we would speak blasphemously against the God who created us? How is it that we would be so low? And it's funny the way that Luke phrases this. The many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. To blaspheme somebody is when they have a position, the other party has a position that is higher than you, and your proper response to them is to speak with respect. But instead of speaking respect, you throw them verbally into the mud. You, you miss, you, you, instead of using words of respect, you use words of disdain and words of hatred and words of mockery, and, and you make them seem as if they are nothing but scum on the earth. You treat them as if, as if they're way below you, when actually they're way above you. So for Luke to say that they spoke blasphemously against him, from the soldiers' perspective, as they were beating this man, it's all he was, was a man. They were Romans, and he was just a, a scum Jew. A, uh, and they, so they spoke to him like a scumbag Jew, like they, 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 they had such disdain for these people. And they didn't think of it as blaspheming. They thought they were, this was just the, this is how they treated, this is how they wanted to treat Jews. It's what they felt that's where Jews belonged. But Luke says they were actually blaspheming. I mean, he is, he, you know who he is. You don't speak to the Son of God like that. That's, and so you've got that contrast of his lowliness and his greatness. 
Now in verse 66, it, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, they came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it from ourselves from his own mouth. nothing he does to resist them. They know from past experience that if they bring some kind of accusation or question to him that he has such wisdom in his words that he can completely turn their arguments onto their head. He has all the ability to, to take they were intending. And many times they'd come to him and they'd ask him a question intending to bring him down in front of people and make him and, and uh, to humble him, to make him look like a fool in front of the people. And with a simple answer or a simple question back at them, he completely would turn the tables and all of a sudden they would be seen as fools in front of people and he would be elevated even farther. They knew he could do that. But he doesn't do it here. They said, if you are the anointed, if you are that Messiah that God has sent, then you better tell us straight up. And the, the whole situation is so backwards. They are high priests and elders of the people and scribes. They are uh, the elders of the people who have the wisdom and experience and they are the, the guide to the younger generation to direct them in the, in the, in the ways that are good. And they are the priests that God set up and said, you will be the men that come between the people and me. They were the mediator between the rest of mankind and God. They would approach God and speak to him in fear and trembling and in carefully being cleansed in all the rituals to come behind that curtain and everything else. It was, and then they were the scribes, the men who copied the scriptures of God and, and were, uh, their job was to be daily immersed in the Bible in the word of God. What are they doing sitting as judges against the Christ? It just doesn't make sense. He's the one that they would come to whenever they went behind the veil and put the blood on the, on the Ark of the Covenant. He was the one that they were approaching. It was his holiness and his glory that they were terrified of whenever they did their rituals. It was his words that they studied and copied all day long. It was his wisdom that they gained. What are they doing sitting as judges over him? It just doesn't make sense. They said, if you are the Christ, tell us. And he said, I could tell you, but you won't believe. <clears throat> Normally, when you're in a court situation... You make your claim, and then you provide a lot of supporting evidence to persuade the jury and the judge that you're speaking the truth. And he could have brought a lot of evidence. He could have brought witnesses in that would have spoken of the miracles that he could perform. And he could have brought the evidence of his knowledge of the truth and all of these different things. 
all he says is, look, if I... It, he speaks as somebody who is above the judges. <laughs> like, he speaks like somebody who says, who, who has the attitude that I should be able to speak and you should be able to believe what I say. I mean, there's, I shouldn't have to prove myself to you. I don't need to prove myself to you. But even if I tell you, you just, you're not going to listen to what I say. And if I ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Like, what right did they have to hold him back? And then he tells him, Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit at the right hand of the power of God. I mean, now you sit in judgment over me, but there is coming a day, and you need to know this, you're playing with fire, because one day you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of God when the Son of Man comes. I mean, you, you need to understand this. This situation that's going on right here where you're sitting over me as if you've got control over me is only temporary. This is according to the will of God. But eventually the tables are going to be turned and you'll be seeing me sit not on your seat but on a seat far above your seat. And they all said, uh, well then, are you the son of God? And he said, well, he didn't. The way he said it, I think when he says, you rightly say that I am, or thou sayest, or however, it's kind of a funny little phrase, but I think it's a, it's a statement of like, it's not like one where you would come and assert yourself and say, I am the Son of God. It's not with power and force behind it, but it's more like they said, are you the Son of God? It's as you say. It's almost like he's, you have, you know, it's like instead of him coming above them, it's almost like he's coming below them saying, you have spoken, and that's, you've spoken, I mean, it's, it's a very humble answer, not one that you would expect the Son of God to give. And he, in the next little paragraph in chapter 23, it says, the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the king. And Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said the same thing. It's as you say. Thou sayest. And so Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man, but they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching through all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. He gave the same answer to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? And, and Jesus says, Well, it's kind of funny. It's, as you say, or thou sayest, almost like he gives Pilate the control. You say I'm the king of Jews, I'm the king of Jews. You say, nope, you can't be king of Jews, then I'm not going to be king of Jews. You know, as you say. Except for it's, it's also got the connotation of, are you the king of Jews? And the answer is, as you say, yes it is, as you say. So it's kind of that connotation in there. But it's very, very humble. <clears throat> The Romans weren't opposed to people having their own kings because Herod himself was the king of Judea. So for Pilate to have somebody say he's going to be king of Jews, then what Jesus would normally have to do in that political situation is send an envoy up to Rome 
and say, hey, I'm more qualified than Herod to be king, and I'll be a better king than Herod, and I'll be able to keep the people in control better than Herod will, so let's give him the boot and let me be king. They didn't have a problem with that. Pilate was so when Pilate looked at this man, he said, he's not trying to overthrow the Roman government and try, not trying to establish some kind of... He could see that, the, that this man was not a... Uh, somebody out to make a name for himself and try to become somebody great. He could see that there was real humility here. But the chief priests and the scribes, they would have none of it. He confirmed to them that he is the Son of God. And they said, well, he's, he's, a, he's clearly a usurper of the throne of God. All of these situations, these situations that he finds that the Lord is, enters into, where the chief priests are sitting above him, then Pilate is sitting above him, determining whether he can be a king or not, it doesn't make sense. He's the Son of God that sits at the right hand of the power of God. It doesn't make sense to find him in this kind of a situation. But it's like the angel said, that's, that's the sign that you will know him. That he will be under, that he will be subservient to men. He will willingly go into a situation as if he has to answer to them instead of they have to answer to him. That is who he is. Even though going into the situation was extremely difficult, but trusting in the goodness of God, he would do the Father's will instead of the will that every Adam in his body was screaming, no, let's not do this. He said, no, we will do this. Father, just give you thanks for your son and for the beauties of his character too. And a lot of things that we don't understand, we can only observe from a distance as it is, as it were to and for us it's a long distance to peer through the pages of scripture and try to grasp what is he doing. And to know that going through this. <clears throat> the reason he went through this was that we might be saved, that it, because he was serving us to bring us salvations. And uh, I just thank you for your son. In his name, amen.